Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Kim Wallace at Eurasia Group has a wonderful resume and pedigree, the former Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the Treasury Department. He took the Alexander Hamilton Award, which is not for singing on Broadway. Uh, but Kim Wallace joins us here with that interesting mix that you see in Washington. Kim, what is the mix of a lame duck session? What really happens? What happens, Tom, is the uh, two sides come together and either lick their wounds or celebrate triumphs, uh, perceived and real, and then they attempt to agree on a bare-bones agenda so that they can get out of town without causing too much harm. What is that bare-bones agenda this time, Kim? This time, John, it's uh, and good morning. This time it's uh, mainly focused on fiscal, so they have to uh, avoid shutting down a few agencies of government on December 12th, there is very little juice for a shutdown in either party, so you figure that they're going to get this done. The bogey there, of course, will be border wall funding. There are a lot of ways to skin that cat. There's, I, I think it's an overblown view that border wall necessarily leads to a shutdown. In fact, I take the other yeah. side of that. And then there are other things I've got to do. Uh, the National Flood Insurance Program expires. Uh, Colin Peterson will be the incoming chair of the House Ag Committee. He was the chair last time Democrats held the gavel. Uh, wants to get that farm bill reauthorization done. If there's anything to watch in terms of both intra-party relationships Please. and then the inter-party relationship, I believe it's the farm bill. Okay. They have every incentive to get that done, political and practical. That'll test Washington a little bit. I think they passed the test. Do they need the president to do this, or is a president removed from lame duck legislative process? Good question, Tom, to the degree that it's not just been in lame ducks, but in uh, the last two years, the White House hasn't been terribly involved in resolving appropriations issues. The appropriators, if you're looking for a group to uh, see taking back regular order and their power, it's been the appropriators. So, no, I don't think the president is terribly necessary to get a deal done. The president, of course, can blow the deal up. Right. Well, he's okay. Uh, Within it, Kim is soybeans, which I guess has to do with a farm bill. I mentioned Binion and Applebaum's wonderful New York Times treatment, and everybody's caught up with him, of piles of soybeans, which I guess rot in real time. Not that, you know, we've got the soybean pile outside Central Park. It's, it's good. Are but, you collecting soybeans? Yeah, no, we're just stocking them. We, you know, we get a little rent off because we stock a pile of soybeans off the pond, the reservoir. Interesting. Park. I had no idea you were yeah. doing that. We're, well, you know, every every nickel counts with afterthought. But but Kim, when when I look at soybeans as a proxy for the farm bill, there's a lot of tension out there across the Midwest, isn't there? There's a great amount of tension, and it showed up in midterm elections. People want to pretend that trade didn't have a voice in the midterms. Yeah. Go look at Minnesota two and Minnesota eight. Definitely trade played a role. And the article you all were running about soybeans stacked up, rotting smells like roadkill, is a proxy for what's going on in about four or five states in the Midwest. States that the president carried narrowly in 2016. But in each of those states, in every competitive district, many of them Republican-held seats, if they didn't flip, the gap between the Republican and the Democrat closed. That's true in every state. 
there's a trend there to watch, and I'm sure the message is getting through to the White House. If my math is lame duck is seven, eight weeks, whatever it is, maybe it's nine weeks, halfway through, how are the soybeans doing? Soybeans are probably going to be smelling a little fresher uh, by the end of November going into early December. I think that the the Agriculture Committee yeah. is going to close this deal. They have a lot of agreement on the bill. The one thing that was separating them was what to do with supplemental nutrition programs. That position pushed right. very hard by the hard right in the House doesn't have legs because that wing lost and Democrats are going to be in control. So what Colin Peterson is telling his Republican allies don't be uh, yeah. be smart. Get this thing done sooner rather than later because the politics hurt you a lot more than Democrats. Kim, some of these problems aren't new. If I pick out the trade discussion with China as one and perhaps the NATO contributions as two, those two issues aren't new. What's new is the way the president this time around is addressing those problems. Once again, the president vocalizing his concerns over NATO contributions today in, let's just call it a original way. Um, the trade dispute certainly has moved away from the status quo, the way that the president used to work with a group of countries and try and get something done. And the fact of the matter is not much got done, Kim. And I'm just wondering how productive this new approach can be. It offends a lot of people. Can it be productive? It can be productive if you exercise leverage at maximum opportunity. The point you're making, Jonathan, with which I agree is it's really difficult to create those opportunities and sustain them. And so uh, economic fundamentals are going to matter. Where is the U.S. economy in a year relative to China's economy? Politics of trade are going to matter. We get a taste of that in the midterm elections. And the president's ability to juggle various trade negotiations successfully at the same time doesn't have a really strong record. And so it comes down to, I think, the macroeconomics and the politics of trade. And both of those lead you to a less bombastic approach by the U.S. administration, except in one area, China, where there's strong bipartisan support for forcing China to renegotiate her trade rules and practices. I'm not buying the notion that Buenos Aires at the end of this month is going to lead to sweetness and light between Beijing and Washington. I think we're in for a long haul on this fight for both practical and substantive reasons. Kim, in your wonderful post-election newsletter, the great divide is health care, the way the Democrats voted, the way the Republicans voted. I assume there's no health care debate in the lame duck term. As we move forward towards 2020, can there be any substantial legislation or is it so polarizing it just becomes a campaign issue? No, I think this one has moved from that status to it, it's become a fundamental economic, a household economic issue, Tom. And so I think you'll see the reverse of what you saw in 2017 coming in 2019 and 2020. That is in 2017 where the majority attempted to curtail benefits to average right. Americans. That didn't work. Okay. And it didn't work big. So they've got to figure out what they're going to do with health care because the costs are burgeoning and the base is growing. Okay. But I don't think it goes backwards. I don't think they start taking away health care benefits. Uh, well, are we, are we heading towards a managed rolling trip to socialized medicine in America? I mean, You're getting closer and closer, yeah. and more and more people are growing comfortable with that as a notion. We just have to figure out the program and the design. Fascinating. Kim Wallace, we've got to have you back just for an entire discussion on that. We can do it with John Farrow, who's lived socialized medicine in the United Kingdom. When when Americans say that, John, in America, when people say that, and a huge body of our listeners feel like 
England is an example of socialized medicine. How do you respond? Do you really want me to wade into the healthcare debate? No, let's, but I'm um, just curious. Let's examine his teeth. Yeah, but but he's actually got very good teeth. Thank you, so. John. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> you know, with the, the hitter that he is, it's like twelve thousand mo- bucks a month cash. Yeah. You know, there's some you very know, sensitive issues in America. I am a guest of this great country. There are right. some issues that I'm reluctant but to how do, how do how do people in the He's United Kingdom... He's a guest, Kingdom so tread John, carefully. Yeah, yeah tread carefully. Yeah, really. Well, you know, like Tom, a lot of I our other guests, this. An this is what I will you know. say. Yeah. In the United Kingdom, I had both. I had access to what you would consider socialized health care, right. which was incredibly convenient, and most of the time it was free or heavily subsidized. Yeah. And then I had access to private health care because I was part of a great company like Bloomberg LP. Okay, so when Americans say, you know, the great fear, huge body of Americans say, we don't want socialized medicine, what's the response of people that have lived socialized medicine? I don't think they think the experience is as bad as perhaps you believe it is to be. I don't know. Now, if either one of us got hit by a truck while visiting London, would... You'd be taken care of. Okay. Well... No, but seriously, Winston Churchill got hit by a car on Fifth Avenue a long time ago. That was, he said, that was the day he got going. None of this really I matters. I imagine, John, you should still get some health insurance, though, just in case <laughs> no, the costs no, really but, start but, building up. I no. can just say that the hospital will take you, John. Can do I you just look say, right or we left? Do, we do have socialized medicine vet bill. Yeah. It's going in for the annual checkup, and once again... Uh, the I saw doctor, you go. I saw you go around Dr. the Karen building said, with a, a little basket collecting change. I, I know that. I know. I know yeah. that. Um, you've socialized vet bills, healthcare. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> You're asking for donations. <laughs> uh, you got that right. I make the check directly out to Horace Mann. I don't even make the check out to the veterinary clinic. The doctor just says, "Make the check out to Horace Mann." That <laughs> That's a small Tony school in New York that veterinarians send their children to. Tim, dollar yen was uh, stronger over the last hour and a half. 113.88, a better, stronger yen this morning. Yeah, but dollar still what? 112.69 against oh, the yeah. uh, against the euro. Dollar strength yeah. there. You know, if it looks like a lame duck and it hops like a lame duck and it squawks like a lame duck, I would say it's a lame duck. We're bringing in our executive editor, lame duck, right now. Yes, Nancy Ognanovich joining us, our congressional leadership reporter for Bloomberg Government. Tell us about this lame duck session of Congress and what does House Speaker Paul Ryan, outgoing House Speaker Paul Ryan, really want to accomplish? Well, it starts today. The boys and the girls are coming back into town and a lot of them are demoralized. A lot of them are going to have to have moving trucks, you know, up against the building, taking their stuff away. They're looking for jobs. And Paul Ryan has to keep people together long enough um, to get a few must-dos yeah. done, including fund the government. <laughs> Nancy, do they actually measure the curtains? Oh, I don't know about that one. But uh, when, when it comes to congressional offices, the first thing you got to do is get in the lottery and try to get a good office. You might end up on the top floor in, in some back corner without an elevator. So it's all about the lottery, and that's going on oh, this, this week. Oh, this is too much. Yeah. They wanna, everybody, does everybody want to view in a parking spot that's close oh, yeah. to the entrance? Yeah. 
Well, of course, everybody wants to have their car very close to the entrance of the garage so that when there's a roll call late at night, they can run to their car. Okay. And they would love to have a window overlooking the Capitol, but that takes years to get. <laughs> who determines the lottery? I, I mean, like the Republicans, they, the, the Republican who was in the majority, they have to move their audience now, their office, because they're in the minority, right? That's right. Yeah. These things get negotiated between the two sides in, in terms of office space and, and staff and so on. But for those people coming in, they're dependent on this lottery, and, um, and that's going on um, this month before the holiday. And not as much attention on the legislation. That really ramps up in December. All right. So the lottery, when it comes to who is going to be the next House Speaker, that's pretty much decided. Is it Nancy Pelosi? Well, it's really looking like that, and the reason is is because she's the person who knows all the legislation and all the deals inside out, a real creature of the uh, House of Representatives who knows every statute backwards and forwards and all the deals and all the people, and, of course, has brought them back into the majority. And although we've heard so many rumblings about challengers, we haven't seen the momentum building for that. Nancy, just a couple of things here. I'm going to give you a list, and you can pick which one you think will actually make it through the whole legislative process. National flood insurance, trade agreement with Canada and Mexico, select committee recommendations updating the budget process, multi-employer pension plans. Those are just some of the issues, correct? Yes, I believe that they will extend the flood program. I don't know if they'll do a full-fledged bill, but I think they'll extend it. The trade bill will arrive on Capitol Hill, but probably won't be taken up until next year. Um, what was the other one? You oh, mentioned? the updating of the budget process itself. Oh, well, in terms of that select committee, they're going to make a recommendation, I believe, to uh, have two-year budgeting. But that uh, proposal has enemies in the Senate, and I don't know whether that will become law. Certainly it wouldn't become law on the lame duck, but it would be something they'll talk about. On pensions, the select committee there was said not to have an agreement yet. And even if they did, that would be an issue for next year. But funding the government is the one thing they absolutely have to do. Where's that fight going to go? Where's that fight going to go? Into the border wall. Because that's a simplistic issue that everyone seems to really understand. And that's something that Trump has really, you know, staked a lot on. And so now they're coming back, and they only have until December 7, that's Pearl Harbor Day, to at least extend government funding. And border wall is at the, you know, the biggest problem. Nancy, describe Rayburn 2328. Oh, dear. Former John Dingle's office, Peter Visklosky. Uh, it's based on seniority. Maybe Don Young will be in there. I don't know. So explain Rayburn 2328 is the coolest office on the planet. I haven't been there. I have to go there. You have to go but there. But I have seen Don Young's office, and it's it, the, all of the walls have animal heads and animal skins and guns, I believe. Well, he's from Alaska. What would you expect? I mean, you know, <laughs> he's the one. His, his legislative funding brought Bear Cam to Alaska, which well, is what we watch at home. <laughs> Vet Bill wonderful. and I watch Bear Cam nonstop. And then, I have as not you mentioned, seen former Congressman Dingell's office. I have to find well, that you, one. You, I mean, this is your assignment before the next time we talk to you is to be ensconced in Rayburn 2328. Now, Ms. Comstock of Alexandria lost, and she was going to be on the fifth floor of Cannon, 
or Longfellow? I mean, how long does it take to walk from the fifth floor of Cannon with no railroad and get back well, to the house? About as long as it takes for me to walk from the garage in Cannon <laughs> to, to the Capitol. But the fifth floor of Cannon, if you've ever seen the Eddie Murphy movie, The Distinguished Gentleman, he, he, yeah. he somehow gets into Congress, and that's about where he ends up on the top okay. floor of Cannon or Longworth. On Office Lottery, Nancy Ogdanovich with us as well. Always brilliant, certainly one of the jewels of Bloomberg News with her expertise on Capitol Kill. Greg Bottle joins us right now with BMP Paribas with the gyrations of the market. What the pros do is they look at a lot of underlying dynamics. Those dynamics come out of the Greek letters. You may know Delta, Gamma with a more acceleration feel. And that Mr. Bottle is expert in equity and derivative strategy. Greg, within your wonderful detailed quanti note is a thunderous chart of the BMP Paribas call on nominal GDP. You people are really looking for a growth slowdown. How does that affect your equity analysis? Yeah, good morning. Um, I think a slowdown in terms of nominal GDP is going to be relatively difficult for the U.S. equity market to digest. One of the things we've been talking to people about is that the outlook for earnings growth next year certainly looks much more challenging than the very strong year that we've had this year. The slowdown in nominal GDP growth is certainly one part of that. But one of the things that concerns us is that's also coming at a time where we're starting to see some pickup in terms of wage inflation, input costs, and interest costs. So we certainly think the outlook for corporate profitability is much more challenging next year than it has been in the recent couple of will, years. Will the market constructively rotate from point A to point B or sector this or sector that? Or is it everyone challenged together? Well, I think one of the things that we certainly see for next year is an environment of winners and losers. And we've certainly seen some sectoral rotation this year. And we think that the environment that we've seen in recent years, a very strong earnings growth and a very benign environment for equities, has kind of provided a rising tide that lifted all boats. And we think that next year, with this slowdown in nominal GDP, but not a recession, these rises in costs are going to be felt disproportionately by different sectors and different stocks. So we certainly think that next year we could have um, a case where some underlyings are feeling a real pinch in terms of margin and others are much uh, better positioned to withstand that. Now, a lot of investors want to know your call on the technology sector because that has enjoyed improved profitability and better margins. But can that continue as tax rates don't necessarily change from the low level that they have been turned into. And also you've seen uh, increases in wage growth. Yeah, I think the tech sector is disproportionately interesting just because of how much of a driver it's been of equity returns in this bull market. Looking forward, our view on the tech sector very much reflects the broader market, that it's not necessarily a single theme for the sector or for the market, but it's starting to look into that sector and to see which stocks or which subsectors are better able to weather that slowdown in terms of top-line growth, which of those have more pricing power so they're able to offset um, wage growth and interest cost and input cost growth at the same time that top line slow slowdown is happening and those that, that aren't as well positioned. So as you think even intra-sector, we're going to get more dispersion. But I think certainly the tech sector relative maybe to 
the consumer discretionary or industrial sectors is somewhat better um, positioned to withstand certainly things like wage costs. The um, the uh, amount of revenue per employee for something like the tech sector is much higher than some of those kind of old economy sectors that could feel the pinch a little bit more if we do see an acceleration in wage growth. What about input costs? We've heard many companies during their quarterly earnings tell us that input costs are going up. Transport costs are going up. The cost of doing business is increasing. Absolutely. I think this theme of cost growth at the same time that we're seeing a slowdown in growth is a real concern. And again, the thing that I would say is that's not going to be um, felt uniformly. So you can think of a, a, a tech company that potentially doesn't have a large expo exposure to input costs, doesn't have a large exposure to wage growth as being better positioned than maybe a uh, old economy stock that relies much more in terms of um, being able to manage that gap between top line revenue and wages and input costs in terms of delivering profitability. So that's what really drives the environment that we see of relative winners and losers, those who can weather that storm and those who will find it more difficult. They find it more difficult, but then there's a the use of cash. Can you explain in English, that's our preferred language here, although sometimes I fail, but, but can you explain, Greg, how cash is an investment within quantitative finance? Yeah, I think that cash as an investment really comes in in terms of the the construction of a portfolio. So I think that if you're um, you know looking to make investments, whether it's in the bond market, the equity market, maybe in commodities, the way that you know, we tend to think about things is in a portfolio context. Um, and cash can act as a diversifier, as a as a store of value in that in that context. So I think that you know, one of the things for next year is if we if you know, um, investors do worry about inflation starting to pick up. Thinking about those different balances of investments and how they interact is important. Just quickly, what kind of cash? Dollars, pounds, euros, renminbi, yen? I think that, um, you know, it's clearly a very difficult environment for calling relative currency moves. There's a lot of political uncertainty domestically, but in many senses there's much more political uncertainty. No, but I mean just Europe. to park, not to make money, but just to park so that you can get the same amount of money back with the same amount of buying power. I'll give you about 10 seconds. Yeah, well, inherently, I think if you don't want to take a strong view on currency, then the best thing to do is to keep your assets denominated in your domestic currency. All right, well said. Very good. Thank you so much. And Stay a, an important conversation on these interior dynamics to the equity market, not just the headlines of, you know, the Dow down 600 points, 25 Let's find out if Amazon is a value stock, and we can do that but with someone who wonderfully does value. William Smead is a Smead Capital. Uh, with just a terrific track record. Bill, how ugly has the year been because only six tech stocks went up and nothing else did? Well, uh, it was really ugly until about six weeks ago, and uh, all, of a, all of a sudden the, the things that we had been talking about and working on became to, uh, began to work their way through the system. Uh, we wrote a piece a couple of months ago called Smoked in 1999 and Vaped in 2018. 
And, you know, if you're a Facebook shareholder or an Amazon shareholder that paid 2000 or or $200 a share for Facebook and you wake up two or three months later and you've lost 30 or 20% of your money, you, you, you got vaped. That, that capital just got vaporized. Bill Smead, uh, coming to us from Seattle, uh, home of Amazon.com. Yeah, he's, he's lived it. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you, what, do you have any idea what happened to the businesses in Seattle as Amazon expanded? For example, there's a Home Depot in New York on Northern Boulevard, not too far from where Amazon is going to be setting up one of its two new headquarters. What kind of business are they going to be able to do? I mean, is this gangbusters for everybody around Amazon? Uh, you know, it, Pim, your question is such an excellent question because it actually speaks both to what Long Island and uh, Northern Virginia are going to go through, but it also speaks to the about the era that we're coming out of and the era we're going into. And, and so o- over the course of the last eight or nine years in Seattle, a massive number of young college-educated tech workers came to this town they're effectively exiles. You know, they're 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 they're. It's it's like being exiled in Babylon. They're not from here. Uh, they they uh, are well educated. They're single, and so the economy of Seattle has been great if you sell things to single people and if you rent apartments. Okay, that, so that, that's, that's a good that's a good guide, right? Because they're going to fix things up and they're going to spend money. No, but this is... Well, yeah, they're going to spend money, but they buy Chipotle burritos, craft beer, and Apple devices. And the multiplier effect on the United States economy of doing that right. is very low. But there's good news. I have great news for you. Those people that came here to Seattle uh, over the course of the next uh, five to ten years are going to turn 35. They're going to be married. They're going to have a couple of kids. And they're going to want a standalone house. And so the beauty of Seattle is we just built it out for 27-year-olds, and we needed to build it out for 35-year-olds. And you guys are going to build out for 27-year-olds, and you're going to wake up in eight years and wish you'd built yeah. it out for 35-year-olds. Oh, this is wonderful to have Bill Smead with us. If you're just joining us worldwide, William Smead of Seattle, uh, Washington. This is Amazon announces Crystal City, I believe, in Northern Virginia and also uh, New York City. Pim, I saw two headlines. All- Amazon to get performance-based direct incentives in New York City of $1.525 billion. That's $1,525 million. And in Virginia, I lost that, Pim. I'm sorry, I lost that. Well, let me just add to this. $573 million. All right, let me just add to this because the numbers, they kind of, you know, those are all yeah. future projections <clears throat> and so on. But Amazon is also announcing that Nashville will also get a right. new operations center. There they're going to be adding 5,000 jobs. Bill Speed, based on your Seattle experience, there's different Amazon jobs. What kind of Amazon jobs do the people of Queens in New York City, what do they want? Do they want people that put stuff in cardboard boxes? Do they want somebody that's going, should I get the Maserati? I mean, what kind of person do they want? Well, no, they're, they're hiring the thousands and thousands of people that are graduating from good colleges in the United States with backgrounds in computer science and and uh, software engineering and, and coding uh, and, uh, you know, doing their thing. Uh, uh, 
in 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 basically they are a technology company that for some reason isn't categorized as a technology company. No one that works there. It's valued not, like a tech company, right? Yeah. So so they're tech workers and uh, they work very long hours. So that's the other thing. Do they is, want yeah, to live it. near where they work? What's the Seattle experience? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They do. I mean, we built. We built. In fact, we've overbuilt apartment buildings within a mile to two miles of their campus. Uh, mm. uh, and, and again, th- that worked great until you know, in in six or seven years, that they don't want to live in an apartment close to where they work. You know, a lot of people said that. Millennials, even after they get married and have kids, are going to want to stay in town close to the restaurants and the bars. And, and I like to say that if you take a uh, married couple, 35 with a couple of kids, and they're close to the bars, you're going to want to own a publicly traded divorce attorney firm. <laughs> you also want some noise abatement, I would imagine. And so, and you're yeah. Exactly. Who, who well, wants their child? Who wants their, right. their two- and four-year-old playing on a sidewalk where all, right. everybody else's dogs are peeing? Bill, to get back to, to valuations, is Apple well, that would be or New York. Am- huh? yeah, yeah, Apple or Amazon, are they value stocks? Well, uh, y- y- you know, I-, I have never been able to even vaguely come to that conclusion on Amazon because I personally believe to this day that overall they still lose money selling their e-commerce, right? The, you, you, I don't know if the two of you have read George Gilder's book, The Life yes. After Google. And he points out that, that Amazon has given uh, delivery for free, Google has given search for free, and Facebook gave social media for free. And our, our capitalist, the democratic capitalistic system, is distorted by having two massive monopoly, or three massive monopoly players have effectively distorted well. the system by, by giving things away for free. And, and so I, I, I don't... I don't know because every earnings report comes out, and I run through the e-commerce revenues and the expenses associated with e-commerce, and they're losing money. So, in in, in Costco's case, to use an example, because it's the model that Amazon duplicated, uh, uh, Costco makes 85 percent of their profit off of the the membership fees, right, and 15 percent well. from running the business. So they just slightly break even. Okay. McDonald's breaks even on food, and they make all their okay. money on, uh, on, well, on beverage. This has been well-timed. Uh, Bill Smead of Seattle, Washington, as Amazon announces Northern Virginia and New York City, HQ2. I guess I'll split the difference. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.